All right. Well, as we prepare for this morning, if you would take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 27. So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 27, and then if you have a bulletin or a piece of paper or something with you, and you want to also mark Matthew chapter 1, we're going to end up looking at Matthew chapter 1. If you're looking on your phone, it'll make it easier. You'll just flip over from Acts 27 over to Matthew chapter 1 here in just a minute, and, and when we get to it, the, the text will be up on the, on the screen as well. If you're visiting today or you forgot about the holiday meal afterward, we would be honored if you would stay. Uh, you may feel bad, you know, you didn't bring anything, you didn't know it was going to be happening, but we would absolutely love for you to stay and eat with us. Just enjoy uh, this lunch. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just stay right here and eat, and we would love for you to do that. And as James mentioned earlier, we're having the lunch next Sunday as well after the morning service. For those who might be new to First Baptist, might be curious about becoming members, I would be honored if you would come to that. It's fun to be able to meet people at those lunches and be able to talk. It's a very informal time. And so if you could just give us a heads up that you're planning to come next week so we can have enough food available, we would love for you to, uh, to be a part of that. One of the things I want to address this morning, and I, to be honest, I don't even know the, the right way to address it, but we need to say something about it, it is obviously the, the situation that, that happened in Ferguson, Missouri this week. And it would be wrong not to come and in some way address that as God's people gather together. Frankly, it's a situation where words fail us. Uh, there are it's a situation that's so complex. There are so many sides of the story. There's so much going on there. But one of the things it reminds us of very clearly is simply the fact that we live in a world desperate for peace. And we realize that that is a peace, and, and it makes sense at Christmas, that that is a peace that only comes through Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're simply going to pray. We're going to pray that the peace and the hope of God would be made known to all people especially in the midst of that situation, but also in our world. Because we have to be frank, Southern Baptists don't have a great track record when it comes to issues of race. And, and so we are indicted. We are in the middle of this situation. And so we're going to even pray specifically for our friends at First Missionary Baptist Church. I, I, I rue the fact that we live in a world where it's still the white Baptist church and the black Baptist church. We, we hate that fact, and yet we realize that in some sense we still live there a little bit. And so we're just going to do the best thing we know, and is to come alongside of our brothers and sisters and pray for them, and to pray that the peace of God would be made known in our world. And so let's do that, and then we're going to jump into the sermon for today. God, we believe that you created a world in which people would live in peace, would live in relationship with one another, and that they would have peace with you. And yet because of sin, that is not the case in our world. We live in a world that is chaotic. We live in a world where tensions are high. We live in a world where people don't listen to one another. They just assume things about one another. We live in a situation where People are spoken badly about, yet we don't know them directly. God, it's so messed up. It's so complicated. And we know that it's the enemy at work to drive people away from one another and away from you. 
And so, Father, we pray at Christmas that the peace and the hope of Christ would be made known. And it begins in our relationships with one another and our relationship with you that those would be characterized by peace. And God, we pray for our friends, our brothers and sisters at First Missionary Baptist Church here. God, I don't know what it is to be a black man in America today. I can assume things, I can say things, I can think things. But God, I do know that because of Jesus Christ, that we stand with them as brothers and sisters. And God, we pray that the gospel would be made known, that your kingdom would come here in Bay St. Louis and Hancock County in this area. Your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, that you would use your people to bring peace and hope to a world of chaos and trouble. And God, we pray that you would do that in a way that we can never manufacture on our own, that we would know it was your spirit moving. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we come together this morning, one of the things I want us to see is that as we grow in our knowledge of Scripture, as we grow in what it means to be a Christian, one of the ways that you will know you are growing in your knowledge of God's Word, one of the ways you know you're growing as a Christian is when you begin to make connections. Here's what I mean by that. When you're reading Scripture and you read a section of Scripture and you see some words or some ideas and something comes into your mind or into your heart and you think, you know what, I think that relates to something I read in this other part of the Bible. And so you turn over to that other part of the Bible and you begin to read that and you realize, you know what, those really do go together. Now some people in their Bible, they have a center column that runs down the text and it gives cross-references where, you know, one verse will point you to another verse, will point you to another verse. But as we begin to grow in our faith, that will begin to happen naturally. You'll just be drawn because of what God is doing in your life. You'll be drawn to other things and say, this connects, this connects. I want to show you a picture on the screen. The picture on the screen is the motor of a 1985 Ford F-150. When I was in high school, I drove an 88 Ford F-150 in high school. Can I tell you what I see when I look at the screen? I see a jumbled mess. I see nothing, frankly, okay? if, If we were playing identify that motor part, I would score a zero, all right, I just, my grandpa was our mechanic. He was a mechanic his whole life. We made the mistake of just taking our vehicles to him. He fixed all the problems. Unfortunately, in the process, I didn't learn anything about how to work on vehicles. Now, some of you, you sit there and you look at that picture and you think, you know what? That part connects to that part and I know what that part does. And if that part doesn't work, it'll mess up another part. Me, I just see a jumbled mess. That's the way it goes with the Bible sometimes. That's the way it goes with Christianity. As you're seeing it initially, as you're seeing it for the first time, as you're reading Scripture, it just seems like a jumbled mess. There's a piece here. There's a story here. There's a character over here. It doesn't seem to fit together. But the more you read and the more you learn and the more you grow, the more you start to see, you know what? I understand how those pieces fit together. And it becomes fun. It creates momentum. It, it creates a desire in your life to know God's word because you want to know how these different parts fit together. I wish I knew how those parts fit together on a motor. I, I need to know that probably at some point to, to improve my man card. But just the simple fact is it takes time. You have to see how things connect together. 
What I want to do for us this morning is I want to connect a couple of passages together for you. I want us to, to piece together a few things that I think will help us to grow in our relationship with God. We're going to start in Acts chapter 27. Now, I had my laser pointer, but it's on my desk in my office, so I don't get to use it. But I do want you to see the map really quickly. So I hate the fact I left my laser pointer in my office. But just a reminder— On the right side of the map and toward the bottom right is Jerusalem and Caesarea. That's where almost all the events in the gospel happen and really where most of the events at the beginning of Acts happen. This map shows the journey that Paul takes when he is going to Rome. Paul is going to Rome because he was put on trial and he said, I appeal to Caesar. In other words, I want the Supreme Court, I want the Supreme Man, the Emperor, to hear my case because I think that I need to stand before him. And so he is going to go on this journey west across the Mediterranean Sea, and then way up in the upper left is Rome. There's a few places along here that we're going to talk about as we read some of these verses. We obviously don't have time to read all of chapters 27 and 28, so I'm just going to pick out a few verses as we go along. But let's start in verse 9 of Acts chapter 27. Paul has already been put on the boat at this time, and they're, they're headed across the Mediterranean. And it said, much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the fast. What that means is it's moving into the winter time. It's moving into that November time frame when sailing became very dangerous uh, on this part of the world. And so it's coming into that time of the year. Verse 10, Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and to cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now that's kind of an ironic verse because we saw a couple of weeks ago that Paul was a very stubborn man who didn't listen to other people very well. And now it comes back to bite him because other people won't listen to him. It's one thing to be a stubborn person. It's when two stubborn people get together that things get really fun. All right, so we understand how that happens. Verse 12. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. They get beat up by the storm in verses 16 to 20. Skip down to verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. In other words, I told you so. Verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. 
Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Can you guys cut back to that map really quickly? So what happens? They're, they're going across the Mediterranean, and they're about to encounter a shipwreck. And the island they're going to land on is Malta. So the country of Italy, the country of Italy, the only way you find it on a map is because it's the boot that kicks the rock of Sicily, or Sicilia. We call it Sicily. The little chip off the rock down at the bottom is Malta. So Malta is way over on the left side. That squiggly line going across the Mediterranean, apparently that's the shipwreck. That's where things start going bad. They they get caught up in the storm. No one knows where they are. And they're ultimately going to be shipwrecked on the island of Malta, which is straight south of Italy and Sicily. Okay, so look over in chapter 28. We're going to skip over the shipwreck. I know that's the most fun part, but we're going to skip over the shipwreck to chapter 28. Once safely on shore we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. My worst nightmare possible. Uh, Verse 4. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice, and justice may be capitalized actually in, in what you're looking at possibly, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the, the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. And actually, in the next few verses, Paul even heals many of the people who are on the island. Look down in verse 11. We're going to finish up this this portion with these verses. Verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island of Malta. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers, in other words, other believers, who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself, with a soldier to guard him. On the back of your bulletin are some notes that you can use as we kind of follow along if you want to make any notes this morning. But here's the big question, all right? Here's just my very honest question. Why in the world did Paul take so many verses, or why did Luke take so many verses to get Paul to Rome? This is a story that Luke could have told in about two verses. Paul was going to Rome, He was shipwrecked. Everything turned out okay. He made it to Rome. That's the difference between me telling a story and my wife telling a story. If somebody asks you what happened on the trip, I just tell them it was a good trip. You know, we went to this place. We did this. We made it back home. Oh, that was good. 
you ask my wife to tell that same story about what happened on the trip, and it becomes a 30-minute monologue about all the details and how everyone felt on the trip, and we saw all these different things on the trip. It could have happened in two minutes, but instead it took 30 minutes to tell it. Now, her version is better. It's probably a lot more exciting than my version, but I just tell the guy version of, of the story. And so, What happens here is Luke could have told this story in two verses, but he takes 58 verses. All this explanation, all this detail. The question is, why? Why does he take all of this time? Part of it, one reason, is Luke is a historian. And not only a historian, but we know from history that Luke loves the sea. Luke loves boats. And so when it gets to the good part of the story, Luke just spends more time telling it because he's interested in it. But a more likely reason, a more likely reason is because he wants to remind us one more time in the book of Acts that the gospel will go forward no matter what opposition it faces. That this journey that Paul Paul is on is a part of God's plan to take the gospel to Rome and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So it's not just a journey for journey's sake. It's a way of saying this is God's plan and God is going to fulfill his plan no matter what happens. So turn over to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bible or, or flip there in your phone if you need to click over to that. Go to Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament. Starting in verse 1, it says, This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, the ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, in other words, Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Do you get the point? (laughs) And then the father of, the father of. Skip down to verse 16. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So two interesting things in Scripture. The book of Acts ends with this very long description of the voyage to Rome. The book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, the greatest document in the history of the world, bar none, begins with a boring genealogy. (laughs) God, why would you start the New Testament with a boring list of names? What is the purpose of that? 
Well, the reason it's boring is because we don't understand genealogies. How many of you have traced out your family genealogy to know kind of where your, where your family comes from? There's, there's shows that are becoming popular on, on TV. There's one called Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates on, on PBS. There's the one that TLC has picked up from NBC that's called uh, Who Do You Think You Are? Which I think they actually picked up from BBC, which happens with all good TV. It starts at BBC, and then we pick it up over here and do something disastrous with it. And so that's generally how it goes. But, but it's these stories about how the genealogy of people traces back. And when you read it, and, and hear me closely, when you read it as a list of names, it really is kind of boring. But when you understand the significance of those names and the fact that the genealogy is telling the story of how God has worked in his people's lives through history, you find out that it's not just a boring list of names. It is the story of God's plan for his people. It is the story of God's plan to bring the Messiah, to bring the rescuer to our world. And so what seems like a boring list of names is a summary of God's goodness for his people. It's, a, it's, it's building the expectation, expectation for the Messiah to come. And the word that I want us to use this morning to connect these two passages together is providence. Providence. If you, if you want to circle it, underline it, highlight it, this is the word that we want to use to hold all of this together of how God works at the end of the book of Acts, how God works at the beginning of the Christmas season is the word providence. In the early 1600s, the church in England was overseen by the king of England, King James I of England. The church at this point in England had gone from Catholic to Protestant. But even though it had become Protestant, they still kept a lot of the Catholic traditions. They kept a lot of the Catholic ways of doing church. And two groups, two groups emerged in the early 1600s in England. The first group are called the Puritans. You may have heard about the Puritans before, but the Puritans were a group who they wanted to reform the church from inside. They wanted to see the church become pure, to get rid of all these traditions, to get rid of all these trappings, and just see the church focused on God's word. But they didn't want to leave the Church of England. They wanted to stay within and make it pure, and so that's where we get the term Puritan. There was another group called the Separatists. The separatists said, you know what, we can try to stick around here and make things better, but it's just not going to work. And so they separated from, they left the Church of England, and actually some of that story is where the Baptists emerged from. Another group that emerged from the separatist movement were called the Pilgrims. So it's Thanksgiving time. One of those groups that emerged from the break with the Church of England was a group called the Pilgrims. They were led by General Bradford. They lived in Holland for a while in the Netherlands area, and they went from there and ultimately decided they were going to sail for America. So in 1620, the Pilgrims left England, left Holland, and sailed toward America. Now, it depends on which story you read, which Charlie Brown episode you watch to know like what your understanding of the pilgrims are. But ultimately, the pilgrims are not aiming for Plymouth Rock. They're not aiming for Massachusetts. They're actually aiming for Virginia. They want to go to the Jamestown colony. But as they're going across the Atlantic Ocean, a terrible storm comes up. Sound familiar? Sounds like Acts chapter 
27, this terrible storm comes up and it blows the pilgrims off course and they ultimately end up landing in the Cape Cod region, in, in that area that would become known as Plymouth Rock. When they land there, their first winter goes terribly. Tons and tons of people are dying in this group. In the springtime, along comes an Indian named Samoset. Samoset is an Algonquin Indian from that region, and he actually speaks English. So he comes along, and he tries to get the people settled down, and he goes off, and he finds another Indian named Squanto. I think somebody had it. Goes off and finds another Indian named Squanto. Squanto comes and lives with the pilgrims, teaches them how to farm, becomes their English translator, helps them through those early years in in America. The interesting thing is after they meet Squanto, they find out that the area where they landed at Plymouth Rock just a couple of years beforehand had been inhabited by this extremely violent Indian tribe. But a couple of years earlier, this Indian tribe had been wiped out by a plague. And all the other Indian tribes thought that this area was cursed, so no one would live in this particular area. So the pilgrims just happened to be blown off course, sent to this one particular area where no other Indians lived, and they were able to set up camp in this area that was safe And along comes an Indian who could speak English who actually had survived the plague from a couple of years before. When you read the letters that come from the pilgrims during this time, when you read some of General Bradford's writings, you know what they attribute all of this to? Not luck. Not chance. They attribute it to God's providence. That God had preserved them and guided them and cared for them as they came to the new world, as they came to America, to be able to spread the gospel. When they get to the new world and Squanto comes and they begin to have their festival, they have the first Thanksgiving. Except for the fact that researchers have now found a description of what they think may be the first Thanksgiving that took place in Texas about 80 years before this. Leave it to Texas to have to be first and best at everyone. They couldn't just leave the first Thanksgiving in Massachusetts. It had to be in Texas because that just is how Texas does everything. So it doesn't really matter where the first Thanksgiving happened. What matters is the fact that God guided these people. He provided for them and he brought them to this particular area. And they attributed all of this to providence. What do we mean by providence? On your notes are a couple of descriptions, a couple of definitions to help you out. When we talk about creation, we're talking about God's originating work, the first work that God did. When we talk about providence, we're talking about God's ongoing work. So creation, God got everything started. Providence, God continues to preserve and govern and guide everything. Both of those things, creation and providence, speak to a God who is powerful. A God who does something that we cannot do on our own and speaks to a mysterious God. A God who does those things in a way that we don't perfectly understand. So when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about power and we're also talking about a little bit of mystery. God does something we can't do on our own, but he does it in a way that we can't fully explain. Now, there are two things that providence is not. The first is deism, okay? Deism 
is the idea that God got the world started and then he just kind of left it alone. So he, he got the ball rolling. He started the world. There really is a God. But deism says that once the world started, God just kind of backed up and said, you do your own thing. It'll be all right. Uh, that's, that's one of the ideas that's out there. That is not providence. Providence means that God is actively involved in what is happening in the, in the, in the world. The other side is determinism. Providence is not the same thing as determinism. Determinism means that we are just puppets. That all of our actions are just passive. That God is just dangling us as puppets, doing whatever he wants to do with us. Determining, determining everything that happens without any involvement from us. Now this gets into some deep water. It gets into some very complicated things. But providence, God guiding and providing, is not the same thing as determinism, this idea of an abstract God that's not involved in our lives. So when we think about, when we think about providence, there are two words that come to mind. The first is preserves, preserves or provides. God is the one who preserves this world, who preserves his people, who guides his people, who provides for them. In other words, if God took his hand, so to speak, off the world for even one moment, the world would cease to exist. We are not self-sufficient. We are not here because of an accident. We are here because God is preserving and moving things ahead. And he's also guiding things. The idea that God is guiding his people in a particular direction. And he guides us, and this is very important, he guides us as a father. We get this idea of providence, and we think of God as a heavy-handed boss but he guides us as a father, as a shepherd, saying, this is the way I want you to go. This is my plan for you. Go in this direction. And even when we veer off course, he moves us in that particular direction. One of the first verses that I remember memorizing as a kid is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. And I think that these are on your notes at the bottom. But it's the idea of trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Or some things say he will make your path straight. This idea that when we trust in the Lord, we know that he is guiding us. I was talking to someone a couple of months ago about the idea of leadership and, and trying to learn from them about leadership a little bit. And I, I just asked them, what have you learned most about leadership? What have you learned most throughout the years? And one of the things that they said that stuck with me is the idea that I could not be doing now what I'm doing in life if the experiences earlier in my life had not happened. In other words, every job had prepared this person for the job that they were in right now. This is the idea of providence, that God guides us, that he puts us in positions, that he moves us along a path, and every step prepares us for what is coming next. In other words, God does not waste our experiences. And let's be honest, life is full of some hard experiences. Life is full of some difficult things. Sometimes you get in the middle of a job, you get in the middle of a situation, and you think, why in the world am I here? How could this be part of God's plan? But God's providence says that every experience, everything that we go through, he is using us using that to move us toward the next space. The idea that God is guiding 
his people. But he doesn't just guide us so that life will turn out okay. He guides us ultimately because it will result in the spread of the gospel. God guiding Paul across the Mediterranean wasn't so Paul could have a good vacation in Rome. Paul was not going to on vacation in Rome. He was going to prison. But the reason that God guided his path to Rome is so that the gospel would continue to spread. The reason that all of those names are at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 is not so we will have a history lesson. It's so that we will know that God guided his people. God guides history toward the coming of the Messiah. And what I hope that you will grasp, what I hope will come into your heart this morning is that you serve a God, you trust a God who preserves our life and who guides us toward the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, God's guidance in your life is not just so you will have a happy life. God's guidance in your life is so that the gospel will spread through you through all of your experiences, through all of the places that he takes you, you, you think back to your life. You are on the coast of Mississippi. Some of you grew up here, so it's not really a surprise necessarily that you might be here. But others of you, 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 you think back on your life and you think, how in the world did I end up here? Like I, all those decisions that were made in life, all of the places that I could have gone in the world, how did I end up right here on, on, on the coast in Mississippi? God, what are you doing? Romans eight twenty eight, the idea that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God is working, God is shaping, God is guiding so that the gospel will go ahead, and so that our lives will be a part of that. During World War II, there was a Dutch Christian family by the name of Tinboom. And this Dutch Christian family, one of their roles was hiding the Jewish people from the Nazis. There's even a famous book that has come out, and a movie that's come out called The Hiding Place. One of the daughters was named Corrie Tinboom. And she had a sister named Betsy Tinboom. During the war, someone sold them out to the Gestapo, the, the Nazi military police. They came by, they arrested the family, didn't find the Jewish people that they were hiding there in their house, but they arrested their family and they sent them off to the concentration camps. Corey Tinboom and Betsy Tinboom were sent off to a concentration camp called Ravensbrück. It was near Berlin. One of the things that happened when they got to this concentration camp is that they were put in an area with other ladies, and this area was completely infected by fleas. There were fleas everywhere. It was nasty, it was dirty, it was crowded, and it was flea-infested. And Corey reflects on the fact that she was bitter at God at this point. God, how could you put us in here with these fleas? And her sister Betsy came along and said, Corey, Scripture says that God causes all things to work together for good and says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. We need to give thanks for these fleas. And Corey said, no, I, I, will, I will not thank God for putting me in this concentration camp surrounded by fleas. But little by little, her heart began to break down, and she realized, you know what? I have to do this. 
I trust that God's going to do this. And so they began to thank God for the fleece. One of the things that happened in their area of the concentration camp is they were able to hold Bible studies for women who were there. And they were able to share the gospel, the hope of Jesus with these women. And countless numbers of women came to faith in Christ because of Corey and Betsy Tinboom being in the Ravensbrook concentration camp. What they found out later is the guards refused to come to their area of the camp. Why? Because of the fleas. They were in one of the only areas in the concentration camps that the guards did not assault the women because the guards wouldn't come in there. The guards wouldn't stop their Bible studies because they didn't want to come in there and deal with the fleas. It was because of the fleas that God was able to use their situation for the spread of the gospel and for his glory. I don't know what kind of fleas you're living with this morning, okay? Don't look at the people around you, but uh, I, I don't know what situation you're in. But what I do know, what I do know is that the message of Advent, the message of Christmas, is that God did not stay separate from the fleas. God entered our world. This is the incredible thing about Christmas, that we don't serve a deistic God who got the world started and stayed separate from us. We serve a God who entered our world, who lived among the fleas, who lived in this place, took on our sorrow and our pain and our suffering, and then defeated it. That is the hope of Christmas. That is the hope of the gospel that God has taken on those fleas. He's taken on that sin. He's taken on that darkness and he has defeated it. And so we live in anticipation of when he is going to come in victory. And during this time right now that we are alive, what we have is we have the hope of providence. That we serve a God who is good enough and powerful enough and wise enough to use every experience in your life, every experience in your life to prepare for the spread of the gospel, to use your life for his glory. As we come to the end of our time this morning, what we're going to do is Corey's going to come up and he's going to play guitar in the background for us. I just want to lead us through a time of prayer if God is at work in your life in some way in particular, I would love to talk to you afterward. I'm going to be sticking around for the lunch. You can contact me, call me, email me anytime. But right now, before we leave this morning, I want to guide us in a time of prayer as we think about God's work in our life.